0: I trust that you are all getting ready for Thanksgiving. Yes, and I'm so excited. My very first Thanksgiving here in North Carolina. Yeah. Although I got to tell you, I feel like I've had about 10 Thanksgivings so far. You people don't mess around when it comes to food. You know how to eat. My wife, who's still in California, she calls me every day and we talk and she says, now, Grim, you're being careful, Right. And she's talking about diet. And I say, honey, I've become all things to all people. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to fit in. She's like, you're not going to fit into anything if you keep that up. And so, uh, but isn't it funny? When I said, are you ready for Thanksgiving? You, you, you probably, a lot of you probably thought about food, didn't you? Because we equate Thanksgiving with food. I think there's three F's. There's food, family, and of, of course, football. And, but we don't want to forsake faith. Right, because that is really the heart of this day. I know Thanksgiving is, a, is an American holiday, great American holiday, but at its core, there is a truth, there is a concept that I believe is central to the Christian faith, because Thanksgiving, historically, if you go back, you see this day is all about gratitude, not to the pilgrims, not to the Indians, not to anything except God Almighty. That's what the day is about. It's about thankfulness, To God, And that, I believe, is central to Christian maturity because we have a heavenly father who loves to be appreciated and and loved by his children. And as such, we love to be loved and appreciated by our children. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about, and I think that's how God made us because we are created in his image. He's a father that craves the love of his children, and we are parents that crave the love of our children. Last week, I got a sweet text from my firstborn. Hayden, my my boy who's at College of the Ozarks, he texted me, he said, Dad, I just watched your first sermon at the Lamb's Chapel, and I'm so overjoyed at what God is doing there in North Carolina, and I'm thankful that he sent you there. I love you, Dad. (laughs) You know? You don't think I screenshotted that bad boy and put that in my phone? meant the world to me. You know, uh, the only downer is I got it between services, so it just wrecked me for the second service. And, but it got me thinking, was I that way? Did I, did I express that kind of love and affection and, and appreciation to my own parents when I was his age? And I think, you know, for the most part, sure, but I also think I had my off days. I remember one day as a freshman in college, I called home. My mom picked up. She said, well, hello, son. I said, hey, mom. I said, listen, can you do me a favor? Can, I, can you put some money in my account? Because... I you know the guys are going out, I'm I'm short of cash. Can you do me a little solid here? Give me a little something, something in the account. She says, Oh, I think we could I think we could manage that. Is there any other reason that you called? And you know, and I said, No, no. Hey, I gotta go to class. I'll catch you later, Mom. Click. Now, I realize that conversation makes me sound like a schmuck. But wait, it gets worse. Anyway, my father calls me that evening he says "Uh, son do you know what today is I said Tuesday he said it's your mother's birthday now folks I don't believe in reincarnation but if I did I I would have expected to come back as a toilet brush okay after that I called my mother I groveled like a condemned man you know so as parents when we are forgotten it hurts why would we think it's any different for God? The die from which we are cast. He is a father who craves his children's appreciation and gratitude. And I believe the height of Christian maturity is thankfulness to God. Paul says in Colossians 4:2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so I would go one further. I would say that thankfulness is not just central to Christian character. It is... It is at the heart of true salvation. Anyone who is truly born again expresses a heart of gratitude to God. And we're going to look at a story today that really pictures that in Luke 17. This is a story about the healing of some lepers. And in your notes, and by the way, on your handout, if you turn that over, there is an outline there. You can follow along. You can fill in some blanks. You can jot down whatever strikes your fancy. But there's a big thought just to kick it off, which is that the healing of these lepers in Luke 17 is a picture of salvation. And I can't wait to tear into this. Would you bow with me as we thank the Lord right now? Heavenly Father. We come to you today as a grateful people, and we are indeed thankful at what you have done for us through Jesus, and we thank you that we can be here even now, opening your word together. Would you bless and anoint our understanding of the scripture today, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's take a look here. Verse 11, it says, on the way to Jerusalem, he, that's Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now, let's set the stage here. What has just transpired is that Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. That's the backstory. Now, Jesus has raised people from the dead before. He raised the widow's son. He raised the official's daughter. But this particular resurrection of Lazarus created a much, much, much bigger stir than those previous raisings, and there are a few reasons for that. First of all, those other resurrections take place Up in the Galilee region, there's not nearly as many people up there as there are down here in Bethany where this takes place. Bethany is near Jerusalem, great big old population center. Furthermore, Lazarus, unlike the the widow's son, the official's daughter, he's not a child. He's a full-grown man. He knows lots of people. People know Lazarus. And so there are many mourners at this event when Christ raises him, including some Pharisees, and these Pharisees have been sent there to where Jesus is by the religious elites in Jerusalem, and they are there to spy on him. But what happens is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, these Pharisees are so moved that they begin to follow Jesus. They come and follow him. How do you think that sits with the powers that be back in Jerusalem? Not so hot. And so we read that the high priest, Caiaphas, convenes a council and they then begin to determine what to do with Jesus. They're like, the gloves are coming off now. We can't mess around anymore. we got to take it to this Nazarene. And they devise plans. They draw up plans quietly to kill him. Now what they don't know is they are playing directly into God's plan. And Christ knows that God's plan for him includes him laying down his life. But this is going to happen on God's timing, not these Pharisees, not the high priest's timing. And so he knows they want to kill him, but it's not time yet. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, he says this phrase. He says, my hour has not yet come. It is not yet time. And so Christ removes himself From Jerusalem, from that area, he goes up into a wilderness region called Ephraim to await the appointed time for him to reveal himself as Messiah and go to the cross. And after some time passes, he begins to circle back, come back down toward Jerusalem. And he is walking along as he's journeying on this border between Samaria and Galilee. And he's approaching this unnamed village and he sees something look at verse 12 it says and as he entered a village he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance he sees a crowd they're coming his way now if you're a marked man targeted for death as Jesus is you might assume hostile crowd Jesus doesn't fear that he knows exactly what this crowd is he's God after all and even if he weren't he could just look at him he could tell something different about them they're not normal people They are not running toward him. They're not walking toward him. They're sort of hobbling toward him. And as he gets closer to them, he'd be able to see that they are covered in sores, indicating that they are lepers. These men are lepers. A leper is the embodiment of despair. This is the saddest of all diseases. It is a debilitating, slow, disfiguring disease alienating, medically irreversible disease. It is mysterious. We know very little about leprosy, how it works. Even today, it's one of our oldest diseases. There's still no cure for leprosy. And it attacks the nervous system. And in Israel, you were considered unclean if you had leprosy. You could not participate in religious life. You were alienated from societal life and very soon it would rob you of literal life because you would slowly die as it disfigured you. This this leprosy was caused by a bacteria. Uh, It would start with a small patch on your chin, on your nose, on your brow, and it would spread out from there. There would be uh, swollen, spongy tumors that would cover your face, your head, your neck. It would descend down your throat into your lower body. It would attack your internal organs and it would eat away at the soft tissue. Your fingers would, would be absorbed into the body and your toes as well as your, as your bones began to atrophy and disintegrate and your, your limbs became these uh, shapeless nubs that you had to contend with. And it would, it would attack the nervous system. You no longer had any sensation. You could not see as your eyesight was destroyed. You could not smell. You could not taste, but you could not feel. And as such, the propensity for you to keep injuring yourself grew and grew. If you were to turn an ankle, you you, you wouldn't be aware of that. You would just kind of recognize that you couldn't walk right, so you would adjust so that you could keep moving forward. But there would be no healing that could take place. If you cut yourself, if you burned yourself, you'd never know it to tend to it. And it would fester and it would worsen until it perhaps became gangrenous. In the middle of the night, a rodent might gnaw off a finger and you'd never know until morning that it was even missing. It's just the saddest of diseases as you became this frightening thing to all who would look upon you and you were utterly cast out from society. You became an untouchable. And so it begins that as we observe this group of 10 lepers, there is a picture of salvation that is presented to us. And not just a picture of salvation, but a specific sequence that we can see in this story, and in your notes, the sequence for those seeking salvation starts with this step. First of all, when you seek salvation, you must acknowledge your state. You must acknowledge your state. It says that these lepers stand at a distance from Christ. They are aware of their condition, and that condition to the Jews represented sin. In fact, in the Bible, leprosy represents sin. Now the Jews quite literally believed that these men were sinners and that's why they're lepers. Now there was not necessarily truth to that but leprosy indeed, biblically, pictures sin. Sin is very similar. Like leprosy, sin is mysterious. Sin is debilitating. Sin alienates you from a holy God. There is no cure, humanly speaking, for sin. You can't fix yourself. You can't work your way out of sin the condition of sin. And when you come to Christ, you must come in full awareness of your condition. These lepers are aware of their condition. They don't come right up to Christ. They stand at a distance because they know that the law forbids them from interacting with a healthy person. And so they they wait because they know what their need is. They are aware of this need. And it's just like a sinful person. The Bible describes people in sin as children of wrath, of disobedience. It calls them strangers, aliens, ungodly, hostile enemies to God, children of the devil, callous, darkened, deceived. Uh, People in sin say, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. There is an awareness and acknowledgement of their need. And these lepers picture that and they see Christ. And they acknowledge their need by standing afar. And then they raise their voices. And they speak to him. Now, when you had leprosy, it would also attack the larynx. And it would render you raspy and and wheezy as you would speak. And you would be unintelligible most of the time. But they speak up to him. And when they do so, we see the second step in the sequence. In your notes, they recognize the Lord's power as we all must. You come to him on on, on, recognizing your need, your weakness, but you also recognize his power to meet that need. And so they say, in verse 13, they lift up their voice and say, Jesus, master. First of all, notice they call him by name. Jesus. They know who he is. They're not talking to just anybody they're talking to jesus when you are seeking salvation and you come to the lord you must come to christ and no one else amen there is one name by which men are saved and it is the name of jesus so they speak the name jesus and then they say master they don't just call upon jesus they recognize his authority christ must have smiled when they called him master his disciples called him master Only those who followed him would call him master. And so this word in the Greek, epistates, it indicated someone superior to yourself. And so that's how we come to Christ. Nobody comes to Christ as an equal. Nobody comes to Christ unless they bow down before him. There's an acknowledge, not just of my lowly state, but of his divine state. He is God, amen? Jesus is God. And and there's a request that they make, In the text, they say, have mercy on us. Have mercy. And this is the third step in that sequence. You must cry out for his provision. You cry out. You have a need. You recognize his power. And then you make a request. You ask him. Not only do they recognize who they are and who he is, but they are audacious enough to ask for mercy. And we see this in scripture, the audaciousness of someone who desires a form of healing from the Lord. There's the woman with an issue of blood. Jesus is walking through the crowd. She touches his garment. He feels the power leave his body. And he turns and he acknowledges her faith and she's healed. We see the paralytic that is lowered through the roof of that house in in the book of Mark. And he says to the man and his friends, your faith, he acknowledges their faith, and the man He's allowed to rise and walk. His sins are forgiven and he rises and he walks. And here we see the, in, the audacity of these lepers to ask for mercy. The word mercy, the root of that in the Greek, it, it pertains to the innards. It pertains to the bowels. They intend by asking for mercy to touch Christ deeply that he might be motivated to help him, to help them. And that's, that's, we've all been touched in that way, whether it's a song or last night, a movie. That touches us. We took up an offering for this film last night, uh, making him famous. Oh, that that film, and you need to pray for that movie, that it would touch people's lives and, and, and bring them to a realization of who Jesus is. It's powerful. And so they appeal to Christ to touch him deeply that he might do something. What is it that they want from him? You know what I believe that they wanted more than anything? I think they wanted to be touched. Do you know what it's like to be utterly alienated from society? Most of us will never know that. The feeling of complete and utter isolation. They never experienced human touch, human love. No one would speak to them. No one would dare look upon them. And how they longed for that. I've been in countries, third world countries, where there were lepers. And I've interacted with him. I I have a story I want to tell you in just a a bit here. But when you interact with a leper who understands if you're a Christian, that you are by definition someone who is compassionate, if you're like your Lord, and they know this about you, What, what I experience is that they would come up to me, they would take my hand, and they would pull it up to their cheek to touch them. Because they crave human touch. They want Jesus to touch them, does he? No, he does not touch them. Look at verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priest. Go and show yourself to the priest. Jesus does not touch them. He does not go to them. He does not close that gap. He merely speaks. Now, Jesus has healed lepers before. He has no fear of touching lepers. He has no fear of contracting disease. He's not afraid of offending certain cultural sensibilities he has no problem with it but here he does not do that he merely speaks to them and he says go and show yourself to the priests now what's that about it's kind of a hazy command it's kind of hard to read into what that means exactly there's really not much specific there i mean he's just telling them to go somewhere he's not even really telling them to do anything physically like 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 Naaman in the Old Testament, Naaman the Assyrian had leprosy. He was told, go, baptize yourself in the Jordan, identify with Israel, and your leprosy will be cured. And it was. It's not like the, the blind man that Jesus puts mud on his eyes and says, go, bathe in the pool of Siloam, and then he receives his blind. This is just go and show yourself to the priest. Now, folks, if you're a Jewish reader and you're reading this, you're shaking your head. You're shaking your head. Because lepers can't approach a priest They're unclean. The priest can have nothing to do with the leper. So if Jesus is telling these lepers to go to the priest, he must expect that by the time they get there, they're not going to be lepers anymore. And then what's amazing is if you're a Jewish reader and you recognize that, that Jesus is expecting a miracle to happen, that miracle follows the mere speaking of words. Folks, that's God stuff. That's not human stuff. Miracles don't happen when just normal people speak words. Miracles happen when God speaks. In Revelation, excuse me, in Genesis 1, in the creation account, God speaks. Let there be, and there was. In the Old Testament, Sarah is barren for like a 100 years and God speaks to her. He says, so shall your descendants be. By this time next year, Sarah, you're going to have a baby boy. His name is going to be Isaac. He speaks and her womb is opened. And so God, uh, God, through Christ, speaks and he expects them to be healed. He instructs them to go and he expects them to obey What's he doing? This is the next step in that sequence in your notes. we got to trust and receive his method. I'm sure that these lepers had questions. You want us to go to the priest? We're lepers. And yet, do they do it? Yes, they do. Jesus is testing their faith. Now, there is some measure of faith already there. I've already... Uh, acknowledge that they approached him. You got to have faith. You're going to approach Christ. They acknowledge their situation. They acknowledge his power. They call him master. So there's a measure of faith there. But now Christ is respecting the law, God's law. And according to Leviticus, before a person could re enter society, having been healed, they still had to go to the priest. There was a cleansing ritual that had to take place. And so the priest was like the health inspector, he kind of signed off on your healthy condition and this is this is still a crazy thought that that, that they're going to go to the priest because of their present state i mean it's like going to the, it's like hey go to the health inspector while you're covered in raw sewage that's what it's akin to by the way here's a few other reasons i believe that christ is sending them to the temple i believe it's a sign he wants to send a sign because you see in the book of leviticus it's the messiah it's the messiah Who would heal the lame, the deaf, the blind, the mute? A leper is all of that. Only a leper would encompass all of those conditions simultaneously. So by healing a leper, Jesus is sending a sign to the priest at the temple. What is the sign? Messiah has come. He has come. So anybody who claims, well, Jesus isn't really making a claim to be the Messiah. Well, you're not paying attention you're not paying attention. I think there's another reason that he sends them there. Could he have just healed them on the spot? Yeah, absolutely. He could. He could heal them. He's done it before. No problem. Why send them to the temple? He's providing for a full judicial restoration for these men because the priest is the one who is going to allow them to reintegrate with family, with society, with the practicing of religion so that they could be accepted. Folks, this is how it is meant to be in the family of God. When you are born again, when God saves you, it is not his will that your new brothers and sisters in Christ look at you and consider you to be who you used to be. You are not who you once were. You are who he says you are. You are the righteousness of God, amen? Amen. And so the family of God is to recognize that and only that. And so Christ knew there are people in Israel that would know that these men were lepers just because they show up and they look healthy. They're not going to let them in unless the priest signs off on it. And so he is working with the law to allow for that out of compassion for these men. I think he's also showing his compliance to the law. That was a common criticism of Christ. It would be of Paul. It would be of Peter, the apostles. People would say, you're against Moses. Moses. This grace stuff, this is against Moses. And so Christ is showing, I I have not come to condemn the law. I've come to fulfill the law. The law pictures me. The law announces me. The law symbolizes me. In fact, did you know that the cleansing ritual that these priests are gonna conduct when these lepers come and they're gonna be all healed, what the priest is going to do when someone is healed of a skin disease like leprosy, they take a pair of doves, living doves. And one of the doves, they slit the throat of that dove. And they let the blood pump out of the body of that bird. They catch it in a bowl. And then they take a sprig of hyssop and they put it in the blood. Hyssop had little bristles like a paintbrush. And they put it in the blood and then they would sprinkle the blood, apply the blood from that sacrifice to the living dove. And covered in this blood, they would then... Release that dove to fly off into the sky. And it symbolized the new freedom, the healing experienced by this person because of the sacrifice and the shed blood of another. Who does that remind you of? The whole law points to Jesus Christ. Just amazing. And so he says, go see the priest. Do they do it? Yes, they do in your text it says and as they went they were cleansed uh, actually in the in the original language they were being cleansed it started to transpire as they journeyed on to see the priest so i want you to picture this with me they're on their way they're hobbling along best they can and as they go pretty soon they're walking I can walk. Well, well, I can skip. I can run. Oh my gosh, I can, I can leap. I've got fingers. I have fingers. I haven't had fingers for years. I, I can feel my toes. Oh my gosh, I can speak. I know you can speak. I just heard what you said. I understood what you said. I can hear and I can see you. Well, I can see you. Can you imagine the transformation, the joy that they must have been experiencing? Now watch this. In verse 15, it says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. One turns back, just one, just one. He realizes what happened. There's all these implications. He can now do all these things he hasn't been able to do for years. And what's the first thing he does with this newfound freedom? He worships. He worships. And he worships in a loud voice. No more wheezing. No more rasping. He worships like we worshiped a little bit ago. And then it says he fell on his face. All the things he can do. He can run. He can hop. He can jump. He can skip. He can leap. He can dance. What does he do? He falls down before Christ. It's a posture of worship. And he gives thanks. He gives thanks. He was grateful. What's he grateful for? All his new gifts? He's grateful for the giver. He's not just grateful. He's grateful for the gifts, but he's most grateful for the giver. His focus is on the giver. Now, notice what What it is about this man The text says now he was a Samaritan He was a Samaritan The Samaritans were hated They were loathed The Jews couldn't stand Samaritans They considered them to be half breeds They were half Assyrian, half Jewish So there was a racial bias against him Uh, They were also considered to be kind of a cult They had some weird views the Samaritans They did not worship in Jerusalem They worshipped on Mount Gerizim They didn't accept any books of the Bible after Deuteronomy And so they were were kind of thought of as a cult, so they were rejected. So this guy has some, some bias toward him, some shunning, some alienation by virtue of his birth, by his ethnicity. You throw leprosy in, and he's a reject on multiple levels. Now, the interesting thing is, just prior to that, a few minutes earlier, he's with this other group of guys. They're not Samaritans, but there's no difference between any of them because they're all lepers, Leprosy symbolizes sin. Sin is the great leveler of all people. Doesn't matter where you come from, doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter your economic status. Romans says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But this man, now healed, he recognizes in this instance that his deepest alienation was not from other people. His deepest deepest alienation had been from God Almighty. And so he turns back to show gratitude for the end to that alienation. Question, where are the other guys? Look at verse 17. Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed, Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Those other nine guys were Jewish. God's people. Man, if anybody should be faithful, if anybody should be grateful, it ought to be them, right? If anybody should give thanks to God. Now, I do believe that they had a measure of faith. I don't think they would have approached Christ in the first place, but perhaps they're thinking, well, he should have healed us. I mean, after all, we're Jewish. We're part of the covenant people. We're the chosen ones. Of course he should heal us. And now look at us. We can, we can re- reunite with family. We can run. We can talk. We can te- worship at the temple. The temple. They're heading toward the temple. When that Samaritan was among them and they're going toward the temple, they're all healed But that Samaritan realizes something as they head toward that temple. He realizes, I can't go in there. They won't let me in there. Oh, there's a a court of the Gentiles, but that's as far as I'll go. I'm not permitted, according to their manipulated system, I'm not allowed into that temple. But God did not dwell at that time in that temple. And he hadn't for a long time. At this point, it was just a building. And what the Samaritan realized is the dwelling place of God on earth was not in that building. It was in that Nazarene back there. And so he turns back because the law can offer me nothing. This is a person of grace. And so he goes back to Jesus, this Samaritan, who probably had one point wondered if he would even experience any compassion because he was a Samaritan, who wondered, would I ever hope to be healed because of my birth, because of my ethnicity? And God heals him, and he comes back to the one who healed him to worship that Messiah. Jesus had had another conversation with him, Samaritan. You remember the woman at the well? You remember what he told her? He said, the day is coming, when you will neither worship in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim, but you will worship God in spirit and in truth. Amen. And that's exactly what this Samaritan leper was doing. He was worshiping with a heart of gratitude and thankfulness. And Jesus says to him, verse 19, he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, your Bible may read that way. It may say, your faith has made you well. You want to know what the original language says? That phrase in the Greek is supistis soto se so. Your faith has saved you. Sozo means saved. It says "soto se sotso." Saved is used twice. That means it's emphatic. Your faith has saved you. That faith, pistis, is is part of the context that means that this man did not just experience a simple healing. Those other nine guys, they were physically healed. They were not saved. This man experienced salvation in the same sense that all Old Testament saints were justified in the sight of God by faith. And the response that comes out of that is a heart of thankfulness because in your notes, this is, this is the indicator right here. We must indicate authentic salvation with thankfulness. It is a mark of your true conversion that you have a heart of gratitude toward God. It is integral. It is a validator of authentic salvation this man wasn't just healed he was declared righteous he was put in a right relationship with god almighty because of his belief that this man jesus christ is the son of god and in him all blessings flow and every saint of the old testament had faith abraham by faith was justified righteousness was accredited to him you see in Hebrews 11, the list of all the people, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Doesn't matter what era you're from, we are always justified in the sight of God by faith. And you know who wrote this book? It's right there in the title, Luke. Who did Luke hang out with? The Apostle Paul. Paul. Who gave us the doctrine of justification spelled out in in Romans and elsewhere? Paul did. And so Luke uses this word saved, I believe, because he understood by his association with Paul exactly what had happened here. This man believed Jesus was God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he lays down his life. Paul writes in Romans 121, the egregious thing about the unrighteous world, and I quote, he says, although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. He's saying that their depravity, the depravity of the world comes out of a root of ingratitude. What is the core of sin? Pride. The father of sin is Satan when he was Lucifer and he fell What did he do before he fell? He said, I will be like the most high. I will ascend above the stars, above the heights, right? And so he fell. The root of all sin is pride. The middle letter of the word sin is I. What's the opposite of pride? You might think humility. John Piper says the opposite of pride is not humility. The opposite of pride is gratitude. Gratitude, because gratitude recognizes an innate lack in oneself, a need. And it also recognizes that the supply for that need is in something outside of yourself, someone outside of yourself. Pride doesn't recognize a lack in oneself. Pride says, I am enough, I'm so sick of hearing I am enough. You are enough. I see it all over the place. I see it in Christian literature. I see popular Christian authors saying, be the hero of your own story. Put yourself first. You are enough. Folks, listen to me. No, you're not. You're not enough. If you were enough, Jesus would have never had to die for you. He is enough. He is enough. Gratitude says, I'm not enough, but I know who is. And I'm gonna receive from that person a blessing that is not earned or deserved. Many, many years ago, I went to the country of India as part of a missions organization. My team went to India, and we were working with a, uh, an organization that we partnered with there to, to build church buildings, to, to plant churches, to train pastors, to sponsor orphans, and so I'm there in, in a province called Rajasthan, a little town called Kota, not little, but a, bit, a town called Kota. And we're on this compound where there was a Bible school and an orphanage, and we were there for a few weeks. And there was a, there was a conference. And pastors from all over India were converging on this compound in Kota, India for this, this conference. And so during the day I was there, I'd never been in a country like India before, and I remember praying before I went there. I asked God to, to teach me something on this trip. I asked him to, to take me to a deeper level in my faith. Whoops. you got to be careful with prayers. like that. That's a dangerous prayer right there. And so here I am. I'm in my early 20s. I'm, I'm a very young guy, and I'm, 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 I'm working with some orphans. We're playing soccer, something like that. And a man comes up to me. He's an Indian pastor. His name is Augustine. He introduces himself, and he says, Will you go with me into the tent? And I looked, and there was a tent. It was set up on the grounds of that compound. And I said, what's, uh, what's, what are we going to do in that tent? <laughs> and he explained, he said, he said, there are lepers in the tent. And I said, leopards? <laughs> and he explained to me, and it was then I understood, okay, leprosy was rampant in the nation of India. And what he was asking me is if I would go with him, this young 20-something, into this tent full of lepers and share the gospel with them, and preach. I never preached a sermon in my life, but I prayed a prayer, and God was gonna answer it. And so what do you say when you are presented with an opportunity like that? I'll I'll pray about it, no. You say, okay, and he walked toward the tent, and I followed him (laughs) at a distance like a leper. And I'm as I'm going toward the tent, I'm panicked, and I'm sending off what I call flare prayers. You ever do that? That's when you don't have time to craft some ornate, articulate prayer. You're just you're firing off these one-word jobs, like "Help," you know. (laughs) And I get into that tent, and there are lepers, and they are exactly like Scripture pictures them. They were offensive to the sensibilities of a westerner and in india they are also considered untouchable they are completely shunned by the hindu society around them they are called in fact they're called the untouchables and as i stood there and this interpreter waited for me to begin talking i remembered asking god what what to do what do i say god i i I don't know what to say i have no we have nothing in common There's no common ground here. What could I possibly say that they could relate to? They're they're Hindi. I'm some white American. They are sick. I'm healthy. They are poor. There's a level of impoverishment I can't even comprehend here. I must seem like Bill Gates to them. How can I relate to them? We have nothing in common. And in that moment, I sensed I sensed the voice of God, not as an audible thing, but more of it, more as a still small reminder of what the scripture records to be true. And it was as though God reminded me, my child, you may be healthy, they may be sick physically, but son, there was once a spiritual disease that ravished you. And it's the same disease that now ravishes them. And it's far worse than physical leprosy. And by the way, the same grace that it took to save you is what I'm going to use to save them. You tell them your story. You tell them my story. You tell them what I did for you and what I'm going to do for them. Now, folks, I don't remember what I said. It just kind of came out. And this interpreter translated for me, but I know this, the gospel was a part of it. That Jesus loved them. That as the son of God, he came and he died in their place. And that if they put their faith in him, if they receive that free gift, they can have eternal life and forgiveness of sin. And they can follow him and him alone. We asked them to pray a prayer of repentance. We invited them to do that where they were. And then we asked if they would, if they prayed that prayer to indicate by the uplifted hand. And I watched eight fingerless hands go up in the air, indicating that they had trusted Christ. And folks, a few days later, I saw all eight of them baptized to the glory of God. And as they came up out of the water, toothless grins emerged. They looked skyward, though there were cataracts over their eyes. And those nubs were lifted up in the air in gratitude because God had healed them, not physically, but spiritually and for all time. Believers, you have been healed. And the authenticator, the proof of that, is a heart of gratitude to a holy God. This week, as you sit down with loved ones at that table and you give thanks, be grateful. Not for what you have, but because he has you. Let's pray. Father God, I just lift up the name of Jesus right now with a thankful heart. We're a grateful people. And we come to you because you are the only one that brings true eternal healing. And we pray for a lost world right now that they might know that same hope. We thank you for the truth of your word. We give you glory in the name of Jesus. We pray, amen.